Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and today is episode 11, the background to the Sembrai Wars, 113 BC to 101. Now, before we begin this episode, there are two things I need to mention. First is that for the next two weeks, there will be no episodes. This is because next week is Christmas, and the week after is New Year's. So we're just going to take the next two weeks off. We'll see each other in the new year. The next episode that we will be airing will be January 8th. And the second thing is that episode is actually the winner's choice episode from the November recruitment challenge. So there are going to be three weeks between this episode and the next episode in the story. Now, unfortunately, this is slightly bad luck as we are about to start the first possible meet between the Germans and the Romans, but there's no way around it. Now, so far, we've talked about the Celtic relations with the Germans, but we haven't really talked about the Roman relations with the Germans. For the Celts, we've been relying on the archaeological record. We've been looking at Celtic and German goods within each other's lands. We've been talking about the creation of towns that we've found that seem to blend the cultures of the two groups. But we don't know any names. We don't have any specific dates or events. With the Sembrai Wars, we finally get the introduction of a Germanic tribe, Sembrai, into the historical written record of the Romans. This is the first time that a possible, possible Germanic tribe enters the written record timeline. Now, before we start on the Sembrai Wars, we should discuss the two sides leading up to the conflict. We need to know who they are. These wars don't just happen in a bubble, but they are part of two decades of tremendous history in Europe. They are also a part of two massive changes in the shaping of the Mediterranean world and the, quote, barbarian world in Northern Europe. These changes eventually lead to the two sides clashing off and on for the next 20 years in a series of violent battles. So, let's start with a side that we know the least about. The Sembrai. Well, the Sembrai is what this possible tribe is called by the Romans. It may not be what the tribe that showed up out of the north actually called itself. The Romans may have Latinized their name or adapted the name from one of their allies. The Cimbri show up in the histories later on, but this doesn't mean that it's the same tribe that the Romans face in 113 BC. In fact, there's a good chance that's not. The tribe called the Cimbri after the event does not match what we see in the 100 teens of BC. The Sempri after the event are located in the wrong location and seem to have very little notion of having met the Romans before the last century BC. Now there are a couple of possibilities for this that will explain why they are related or aren't related. First, maybe these were the Sembrai tribesmen who just finally found a settlement after the wars. Maybe this was part of the same tribe but did not take part in the advances as they were waiting for the call that never came. They were waiting to hear about the great lands that their fellow tribesmen had conquered, but never received it. 
Maybe they had split due to feuding issues with their fellow tribesmen that appeared in 113 BC, and they had gone their own way. Maybe it's just simple Roman mistakes, and their names are so close that they call them the same thing. Unfortunately, there's no way of knowing. These are just all theories. It's simple speculation. We have no evidence to lean one way or the other. This, by the way, is going to be a common issue for these Sembrai Wars. In fact, you can argue it's the theme for the Germans in the Roman Age period. How many of you have seen the Tim Allen show, Home Improvement? Do you remember his neighbor? Can you tell me his name? His job? Can you give me a full biography on him? I can tell you his name. It's Wilson. And Wilson is sort of like the Germans. Tim is our Roman Empire. We know what his sons are doing. We know what his family is doing. We know what his co-worker is even doing because they are a large part of his life. Wilson, on the other hand, we don't even know what his face looks like. The details we learn about Wilson is what is involved in Alan's life. We never really see what's going on past that fence unless Tim Allen is going over there himself. Wilson simply gives advice. He will mention brief details of himself. But overall, our knowledge about Wilson is very limited. And the Germans are the same way. They enter into Roman history only when it bothers the Romans, only when it's important to the Romans. We will learn very little about what is going on in their own lands, or any information of the Germans that is not important to the Romans' current issues. While this is a common issue that lasts throughout the Roman Empire, it's even a larger problem at this point under the Roman Republic. You see, the Roman Empire at its height has expanded its power in the north to realize that there are not just one culture group but several. They no longer think that the Celts are their only neighbors. They have fought the Germans. They have traded with them. They have realized that there are major differences in the culture and the language. However, this is going to take 50 years between what we're talking about now and then before there's even a chance for the Romans to realize that there's a difference between the Celts and the Germans. At this point, for the Romans, anyone to the north is automatically a Celt, a Gaul. The Greeks are the same way. Quote-unquote barbarians to the Greeks and the Romans were a dangerous, uncivilized group. Tribesmen that threatened to end all civilization if they were ever successful. They didn't have their own societies. They didn't have their own culture. They were all just uncivilized. They belonged in the same group. And so our sources dealing with the Sembrai are not exactly trustworthy in describing who they were. The Sembrai could have been Germans. They also could have been Celts. Or they could have been from the East. Or, and this is a likely scenario, it was a combination of Celts and Germans, and maybe some Eastern tribesmen as well. As the Simbrai are moving from one place to the other, they pick up more and more people. There's just no way of knowing. The Roman sources can't tell us because they don't know. They don't realize that there is a difference. 
Not yet. Now, it's not all in the dark about who the Sembri are. We do know a couple of things. First of all, we know why they suddenly show up in 113. Roman sources mention that the tribes came down from the north to escape a collapsing coastline due to flooding. The Sembri were fleeing to the south looking for a new home, somewhere that they could set up and farm. And apparently, they clash with virtually every tribe as they move, as no one wants to give them the land. When they run into the Romans for the first time, it's because they clash with one of their allies north of the Alps. And this leads to a peculiar thing of the Sembri that still boggles my mind. If they fight their enemy, and even if they win against their enemy, they don't press their advantage. They seem to move on. Now what could be the issue is that the fighting that they are involved in decimates the farms and increases the danger to the Sembri in the area, and so they have to go elsewhere. Or maybe their leaders are just super picky and keep finding faults with the land that they conquer and have to move on. Who knows? But what we see of the Sembri as they enter the Roman world is a massive group of people fighting or reaching out to every tribe they run into for a new plot of land and peace and quiet. That's all we have on the Sembri. I know, great, right? So while with the Sembri we are having to sit here and make assumptions, the Romans, well, we are better off with because they leave us a written record. The issue with this record is that it's created by a select few writers who, like anyone, have their own agenda. It'd be like learning the history of World War II only from five different authors and only one book from each author. So much would be left out. But still, it's better than nothing. It's better than having to speculate. And what we get from this time period is a focus on internal affairs and anything dealing with Roman politics. Now at a glance, this would probably put you in a mind that this era was peaceful for the Romans. There are no major wars. There's no major threat. And so the sources focus on the inside. I mean, if you're discussing Roman politics and domestic issues, then there's got to be nothing going on for foreign affairs. If you took a history class on the Roman Empire, this period could be focused on just the Gracchi brothers, their attempts to reform Roman society, and their eventual murders by the Senate. I mean, that's what the sources focus on. Why shouldn't we? Well, it's because that is definitely not the whole story. You see, the sources make the switch from focusing on foreign affairs to domestic issues in 146 BC with the end of the Third Punic War and the Achaean War. Now, the Third Punic War forever decided who was going to be the major power in the Mediterranean world, Carthage or Rome. Now, most people know the Punic Wars thanks to Hannibal. No, I'm not talking about the cannibal psychiatrist. I'm talking about the Carthaginian leader who invades Italy from across the Alps with elephants he brought across Spain and Gaul. This is from the Second Punic War, and even though he does a really good job, he still loses the war. This Third Punic War sees the final end of Carthaginian power. 
as its capital, Carthage, in modern-day Tunisia, is burnt to the ground, and then that ground is salted, so nothing can grow there again. The Romans really, really didn't like the Carthaginians. But in 146, they have defeated their largest rival. After three long and bloody wars, they are the only power left in the western Mediterranean. And thanks to these three wars, they have also gained land in Spain, Tunisia, and they have conquered all of Sicily. Now, out of the Achaean War, Greece falls completely under Roman control and will join Macedonia as a Roman province. Now Rome owns Macedonia, Greece, and a strip of land connecting these two to the Alps called Illyricum. At this point, the Roman Republic doesn't have any major rivals. In fact, they are going to start gaining land in modern-day Turkey thanks to some good political wrangling. They have increased their land. They have secured their borders for now. And so the sources turn inwards. They focus on reform. They focus on issues within the Senate. However, Rome does not just take all this land and that's it. There are revolts in Spain, Macedonia, and Sicily. There's the first servile war, which is the first massive slave revolt. A danger that Rome can never take lightly because the majority of their workforce is slaves. There's the invasion of the Scordasians into Macedonia from the north. Armies are crushed, leaders are killed or humiliated. For the entire period from 146 to 113 BC, there is one disturbance or another within the empire that requires the attention of the Romans and for blood to be shed. In fact, by the time the Sumbri arrive in 113, Rome is busy fighting a major war and is about to fight another one, and thus they are already spread thin. Greece and Macedonia are under attack by the Scordosi, a barbarian tribe, remember, a Roman version of a barbarian tribe, that have moved in from the north and have sacked the great town of Delphi. In Africa, a Numidian civil war will finally end with the rise of Jugurtha. Jugurtha will unite most of Numidia, and a war will break out between him and the Romans that will cost the Romans thousands of lives to end and a better part of a decade. All of a sudden, the Sembri arrive in 113. So remember this as we go on, and we discuss the Sembri Wars in further episodes. All three of these events happen at the same time, and Rome is having to deal with three parts of their empire under hostile invasion during a period that our sources focus on internal politics. Greece, Macedonia, Tunisia, and northern Italy are all under threat, and it will expand into other areas of the empire. While at no point do the Numidians, the Scordisians, or the Sembri work together, they still affect each other's wars, as Rome has to change focus from one to the other, painting a picture not of a peaceful time, but of a man treading water for dear life. Now, in the lead-up to 113 BC, the Romans are not just trying to retain their empire, but they're also looking for ways to connect it and expand it. 
And these moves that they are going to make are some important steps to the lead-up to the Sembrai Wars. Now, if you looked at the Roman Empire at the end of 146 BC, it is large and relies on the Mediterranean Sea to connect it. So, if there's a major storm, high pirate activity, or the Romans simply don't have enough boats to ship their army, then the Romans aren't able to effectively control the outer limits of their empire. Nowhere is this felt harder than in Spain, where they're being dealt serious blows by a man named Viriathus, a Spanish rebel who had learned from the Romans how to fight, and has been using that knowledge to overstretch Roman resources that are busy trying to fight rebels in Sicily, Greece, and of course the Scordasians who are still in Macedonia. Now eventually, after losing several armies, the Romans do catch up to Veratheus, and they kill him through treachery. He sends two people to go deal with the Romans, try to make peace. The Romans bribe these two people, and so when they go back to Verithius's camp, they kill him. While the rebellions in Spain die down, the Romans realize that if they're going to hold on to Spain, they need a land route. They need something like Illyricum that connects Italy to Greece and Macedonia. So, in 125 BC, the Romans begin their first big push into Gaul, the only land route that connects Spain to Italy. Now, in 125, they're given their excuse to push into Gaul when their ally, Massilia, modern-day Marseille, is under threat from the Gallic tribe Saluvai. And so Consul Flacius moved in, and he defeats this tribe, along with apparently two allied tribes, the Ligurians and the Vosatine. Now, even though he defeats them in 125, there's still continuous fighting in the area for the next few years, until Saluvian king flees to a tribe called the Aloborgus. Now, we believe the Aloborgus is the leading tribe in the region. This is the largest tribe in the area, the ones that the Romans would be most feared about fighting. However, despite this power that the Aloborgus are supposed to have, they too are defeated by the Romans. Despite this defeat, it only seems to anger the Gauls because in 121, Rome faces nearly every single major tribe in the area. However, it's a massive defeat for the Gauls. They are crushed. And the Gauls are forced to surrender. And the Arvinian king, another tribe we believe was a major provincial power in the area, is not only forced to surrender, but is forced to send their king and his son to Rome to personally surrender to the Senate and to serve as hostages for peace. Rome wins in Gaul. By 121, there is no major enemy left. The capture of the Gaulish king and his son will keep the Gallic tribes down, or at least that's what the Romans are hoping. After their victory, the Romans will establish the town of Tarbo and create a province of the Transalpine Gaul, which will build their land route to Spain and allow them to establish control and create small allies in the region to act as a buffer. However, their success in the area is going to cause two problems for the Romans. 
First, those Gauls who did not ally with the Romans, who were defeated in 121, they are going to be embittered. And they're going to be biding their time, waiting for an opportunity to strike back and reclaim their lost lands. This is going to force Rome to always keep Gaul in mind when dealing with politics and barbarians, quote-unquote, to the north. Because if they show weakness, if they show even the slight hint that they are not invincible, they risk losing everything. Meanwhile, the system of alliances that the Romans built with these friendly neighbors will force the Romans to interfere in the north. This will cause them to get involved in occasional scuffles with their Gallic neighbors, and eventually will give Caesar the excuse to invade the rest of Gaul. The other important thing that Rome did in the lead-up to the Cimbri War was something extremely minor to the Romans at the time, and they probably wouldn't have given it a second thought. In 115 BC, just two years before the Cimbri arrived, the Romans reach out to a tribe called the Tarusi, and they create an alliance with them. Now, this is standard Roman practice, and in many ways, it's helped Rome in the past. These alliances would have been made with bordering tribes, especially in the north, and they act as an early warning system. Looking at the Roman Empire, at this point, you would think that the Alps serve as a perfect barrier. But the mountains, while tall and formidable, have several passes that the enemy can use. And if Rome doesn't control both sides of the passes, they don't know if the enemy is going to invade until it's too late. Their army can't get prepared, can't march to where the enemy is going to be until after northern Italy is under threat. This is how Hannibal was able to successfully invade Italy in the Second Punic War. Rome did not control both sides of the Alps and had no idea that Hannibal was coming until it was too late. So, to counter this threat, Rome relies on a network of friendly tribes on the far side of the Alps to give them a heads up of upcoming threats. Now, there is a trade-off, and that trade-off is that Rome has to protect her ally, and they will get mired down in local politics due to this. The alliance with the Tarusi was not a special occasion. They weren't a big tribe. They weren't a special power in the area. It was just an alliance. However, in 113 BC, the Tarusi received word from their neighbors to the north that a large and a potentially dangerous tribe is making its way south towards its borders. And Tarusi could be overwhelmed if they stand alone. So, they reach out to their allies, Rome, and beg for assistance. And so Consul Paprius Carbo is sent to investigate the disturbance that will start off the Sembrai Wars. Alright, so this is where we're going to stop for this week. We have discussed the Romans, how they are securing their empire, expanded it at the cost of the Gauls, creating themselves an 
enemy and also weakening power in the area. We've talked about the fact that they are under constant warfare on all points of the compass, whether it's in Spain, Greece, Africa, or as we mentioned earlier, in Gaul. We've talked about how the Sembrai we know very little bit about, but that it's a massive group of people that could be German and are forced to migrate, looking for a new home, and how they are going to crash into the Romans by pure accident in 113 BC. If you have any questions, you can email me at podcastonjeremy at gmail.com. Please come join us on the Facebook page. We'd love to have you. Remember, there is no podcast for the next two weeks, and we will not be picking up our story until three weeks after this week. I hope you all have an amazing holiday. I'll see you next year.